Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Thank you, Emily, for reminding us that the freedom we take so for granted in our country today was bought at such a high price. We honour those that paid the ultimate price for our freedom, and we thank everyone that has served and those that continue to serve our country. I'd like to add my welcome to everyone joining us at our online gathering today. I hope you've been encouraged as we've worshipped together. Thank you so much, Matt and Evan, for leading us today, and especially for involving the kids in the way you did. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, please do take some time to explore our YouTube channel and our website. We'd also love to connect with you in other ways too. You can email us at hello at newfrontierschurch.com if you'd like someone to call you or to pray with you. And if you live on the New Hampshire seacoast area, you can also let us know if you have any practical needs that we can help you with. We're working our way through a series of messages from the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 2. Today, we're going to take a look at verses 11 through 17, and I'm reading this morning from the Christian Standard Bible. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honourably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is the Lord's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honour everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honour the Emperor. Wow! What a challenging passage for our postmodern Western minds. Peter's words are so direct, almost brutally so. Submit to every human authority, to the Emperor as supreme authority. What's that all about? The word submit here in the original Greek is hypotasso, and it was originally a military term. It literally means place yourself under the command of, or subject yourself. The words for every human authority are anthropine katesi, which literally translated means every human creature. Peter is literally saying, subject yourself to everyone. Not just people you like or agree with, but everyone, including to the emperor and his governors. Now, wait a minute. The government Peter was directing his leaders to submit to was nothing like the government of our day, at least the one we have here in the US. We live in a democratic republic. We get to have a say in our political process. We get a voice in shaping how our nation operates. We enjoy the benefits of, as Abraham Lincoln put it in the Gettysburg Address, government of the people, by the people, for the people. 
It could not have been more different for Peter's readers. As I mentioned a few weeks ago in the introduction to this series, scholars agree that Peter composed this letter from Rome around 62 to 63 AD during the tyrannical reign of Emperor Nero. This was about 30 years after he'd witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection, 30 years in which the gospel had borne much fruit, often out of suffering, as the church spread like wildfire across the ancient world. Peter's letter was written to a group of churches along a trading route in what is now Turkey. This insignificant band of believers were facing trials living under Nero's rule. But these trials were about to get much, much worse. In his book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, historian Tom Holland has sought to chart the incredible impact Christianity has had on the Western world over the last 2,000 years. I've asked Anna Linden, who with her husband David, serves our church family in modern-day Turkey right now, to read a short paraphrase from Holland's book, that describes what life must have been like for that mid-first century Turkish church under Emperor Nero's rule. Anna. In the capital, a younger Caesar had come to power who took flamboyant pleasure in blurring the boundaries between human and divine. The great-great-grandson of Augustus, Emperor Nero, also ranked, courtesy of his adoptive father's promotion to the heavens, as the son of a god. Divine favor had touched him from the very moment of his nativity, when the first rays of a December dawn had bathed him in gold. Flatterers compared him to Apollo, praising him for bringing in a new age of joy, for giving new breath to silenced laws. Absolute in his rule over the empire, he pushed such propaganda to ferocious limits. When he brought the good news of his reign to Greece, he did so in the flashiest manner possible, by cancelling the province's taxes, starting a canal across the Isthmus of Corinth, and starring in the Olympic Games, allegedly winning every sport he took part in, including the ten-horse chariot race, which he dropped out of in the middle. But he was still crown champion. His sycophantic officials argued that he would have won had he completed the race. Coins, statues, and banners all proclaim Nero as being haloed with divine fire. Like some figure sprung from tragedy, Nero killed his mother. He kicked his pregnant wife to death, and he was married dressed as a woman to a man. Such was the life of a son of God and ruler of the world, not bound by the drab and wearisome conventions that governed the affairs of mortals. Nero's conduct became still more egregious after his mother's death. In the summer of 64 AD, a deadly fire broke out in Rome. When at last it was extinguished, perhaps a third of the city was left as smoking rubble. Many claimed that Nero himself had started the fire to clear land for an extravagant palace. But his plan backfired, and his blame turned towards him, Nero's eyes fixed on the early church as culprits. The charges against them, arson and hatred of humankind, were disconnected from any detailed interrogation of their beliefs. They were scapegoats, nothing more. Nero, ever fond of a spectacle, displayed a vengefulness worthy of Apollo. Some of the condemned dressed in animal skins were torn to pieces by dogs. 
Others lashed to crosses were smeared in pitch and used as torches to illuminate the night. Nero, riding in his chariot, mingled with the gawking crowds. Among those put to death, so later tradition would record, were two famous names. One, beheaded as befit a Roman citizen, was Paul. The other was Peter. Thank you, Anna. Wow, again! Can you imagine living in an environment like that, under a regime like Rome, that controlled virtually every aspect of your life? Yet even under such difficult circumstances, Peter's instruction to the churches was to submit to Nero and his delegates. And it's not just Peter. Paul was just as bold in his remarks about the Roman governing authorities in his letter to the church in Rome. Take a look at Romans 13 verses 1 to 2. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. These are remarkably similar words to Peter's. So clearly they were both on the same page. And if that's the case, just how are we to react to these words in our modern democratic world? Well, we can't just lift these verses out of Peter's letter in isolation and expect to be able to apply them in our world without first understanding the context of Peter's words. What was going on in the lives of those to whom he was writing? What would they have meant to his listeners? to those fledgling persecuted Turkish churches. Verse 11, our starting point today, represents a transition point in Peter's letter. As Sam explained so well last week, just before this, Peter had reminded his readers about their status as followers of Jesus. Because of what Jesus did, his followers, most of whom were nobodies in this world, have become God's people a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. They no longer belong to the world. That was true of Peter's Turkish readers and it's just as true for us today. In one of the earliest defenses of the gospel from the second century, a self-proclaimed student of the apostles put it like this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress and food and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they have to be living in. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labour under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they live on a level that transcends the law. Just like Jesus prayed, 
we are still in the world. We follow its customs. We play our full role as citizens. But we are no longer of the world. Something extraordinary has happened. And we are now strangers and exiles. Citizens of heaven. Aliens in a familiar world. We have been transformed by the gospel. Our lives have been made new. We've been born again of an imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. And that changes everything. We've been called by God. We belong to him now. In a paradox central to the Christian faith, Peter says we are free, but we are free to submit to God as his slaves. God has a new purpose for our lives. We are now his disciples called to make disciples that make disciples. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to God. Our life purpose is no longer about us. But rather it's about us playing our part in God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. It's about us helping others to find their way back to God. The Bible says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are now ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to mankind through us. And this means we can no longer act in the way the world acts. Peter begins a whole new section of his letter to explain how we are now to act differently, refocusing away from ourselves and submitting to others for the sake of the gospel, that the world might see Jesus at work in us and come to him too. And he sums it up in four succinct commands in verse 17. Honour everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honour the emperor. Given the limited time we have this morning, I'm just going to focus on the first and last of Peter's commands today. Honour everyone and honour the emperor. And I'm going to flip them around. So firstly, what does it mean to honour the emperor? How on earth could Peter ask these believers to honour Nero, a cruel tyrant with delusions of divinity, who would be responsible just a few years later for Peter's own death? Well, Peter gives us the answer in verse 13. We honour the emperor and the authority he represents because of the Lord. It is because God, not humanity, is behind the setting up of civil authorities. The world is in a fallen state and civil government and law, even bad ones, are a restraint on evil. It's difficult to imagine any government worse than ancient Rome for Christian believers. But the power of evil and corruption is so strong in our fallen world that humans without government would quickly throw off restraint and turn to lawlessness. God's common grace 
has provided mechanisms of law and order that point to his perfect order and will, a world of love, joy and peace. We submit to and honour the government authorities as living examples of God's kingdom at work in the world. Our lives and behaviours are living letters to the world, pointing to God. As Peter says in verse 15, our behaviour silences the ignorance of Christ's critics. This is not, though, for our personal benefit. And here's a hard pill to swallow. Throughout history, the honourable actions of Christians have often directly led to their suffering. But following Jesus, living life in the kingdom of God is all about dying to ourselves and living for the other. As Henry said in his devotional on Thursday, we give up our small meagre lives and up comes this beautiful new life in Christ. Now it's important to recognise that the words Peter uses in this passage are submit and honour, not necessarily to obey. Submitting does not mean obey under all circumstances. The Bible has many examples of God's people being commended for disobeying human governments. Peter himself was thrown in jail for speaking about Jesus, only to immediately continue once he'd been released. There's a touch of irony here in Peter's words. In saying honour the emperor, Peter has placed Nero on the same level as everyone else. Rome's emperors claimed to be divine, but God's people were only to respect the emperor as they would respect any other human being. They should fear God alone. Honouring the emperor means giving the government its rights, what it owns, what it controls. But we can't obey the government to the point of giving it rights that belong to God alone. For the early church, one thing that meant was refusing to recognise the divinity of the emperor, for which they were branded atheists because they could not worship a false god. Neither could they endorse a lie that might prevent others from finding the one true God who alone is worthy of worship. There are times when we serve the highest good of the state by refusing to obey its demands and insisting on obedience to God. In doing so, we bear a greater witness and we work for greater justice by effecting change within the state. The keys here are justice and witness. Our motive is paramount. We are servants of God and his call, not of our personal whims and desires. And the standard is really high. We have no right to resist the government unless its laws are directly opposing God. For example, in requiring us to sin or to promote injustice by doing so. Let's broaden our perspective now and look at Peter's other command about honour. His requirement that we honour everyone. 
Every human being is deserving of our honour. Everyone, no matter how much we might disagree with them, dislike their lifestyle or be distressed by what they say and do, they were all made in the image of God and are worthy of our compassion, our love, our kindness, our respect and of dignity. They are worthy of honour. In Philippians 2, Paul said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We can't just express this theologically. It's not something just to believe. It only really counts if it affects the way we treat others in our actions and in our words. How we treat people has a direct impact on the gospel. Remarking on our passage in 1 Peter, Tim Keller said, Are we the kind of church of which the world says, We don't share a lot of their beliefs, but I shudder to think what this city would be like without them. They are such an important part of the community. They give so much. If they left, we'd have to raise taxes because others won't give of themselves like these people do. Though they accuse you, they see your good deeds and glorify God. Are we the kind of church that the people of the seacoast would say? We really don't get their beliefs, but we shudder to think how our cities and towns would be without them. I am so challenged by a statement like this. If we disappeared tonight, would Rochester, Somersworth, Kittery, Portsmouth, Elliot, Amesbury, Dover or any of the smaller towns actually notice? Do we make others' lives better so they glorify God because we are here? The things we are doing as a church to serve the community matter so much. Sometimes they can feel so small and insignificant, but whatever we do for the least of these, we are doing for Jesus. Whenever we serve the marginalized, the broken and the lost, without judgment, without patronizing the people we are serving, we are proclaiming the gospel through our actions. And it's not just those on our doorstep. I was so encouraged to hear Daniel's report this morning. Potter's House is an amazing church. They selflessly pour themselves into communities with so much need in Providence. And we have the privilege of working alongside them in the mission. Your gifts are literally saving lives. What an enormous mandate God has given us to make a difference through the things we do. I'm convinced that as we continue to find more and more ways to serve our communities across the seacoast, this demonstration of the kingdom of God at work will result in much growth and life change. What can each one of us do to serve our cities to the point where they see our good deeds and glorify God? Honouring people isn't just about the things we do for them. It's also 
about the words we use when we communicate. The Apostle James said, the untamed tongue is a fire. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It stains the whole body. Words are so important. A thoughtless word can undo the most generous gesture. A harsh word can wreck the closest relationship. Words are powerful because they reveal the motive of the heart. They reveal whether we are truly honouring the other. I'd like to close my time today with a couple of topical thoughts on this. Firstly, let your words be filled with truth that lifts others up, not propaganda that seeks to control and undermine, especially those we disagree with. We live in an intensely polarised society. Most of the battles we engage in today are battles of words and ideas, especially in the world of social media. Since so much of Peter's letter focuses on governmental authority, and this is an election year, I thought it might be helpful to spend a moment on how this might affect us in the political realm. Passionate partisan political debate isn't new. The British House of Commons is renowned for the ferocity of debate between the parties. Indeed, historically, the benches in the chamber were set far enough apart so members wouldn't be able to reach their opposition if inclined to thrust at them with their swords. The red lines on the floor today mark a sword's length between the opposing benches. It is entirely appropriate to have strong views about those things we are passionate about, especially matters concerning sin and injustice. While the New Testament doesn't endorse any particular form of government, we live in a democratic republic where, as I mentioned earlier, the will of the people underpins the purpose of government. In such government structures, strenuous debate and discussion usually helps create robust and fair laws for the benefit of us all. So if you feel passionate about something and want to participate in the debate, I say go for it. Engage fully in political dialogue. I love reading books by people with views I disagree with. I love the cut and thrust of robust discussion and debate. Some would probably say too much. I love encouraging people to really think about why they believe something and to press into God with the tough questions that often emerge from these questions. But, and it's a huge but, when we engage in such debate and dialogue, whether in the city hall, our neighbourhoods or on social media, we can't leave Peter's council on the doorstep with our swords. While you may feel really strongly about something, before you speak, I would encourage you to think deeply about the impact your words will have on those who hear or read them. Try to understand why they might feel the way they do. Seek to understand their argument to the point where you could argue it on their behalf. That's what honouring them looks like. 
taking the time to treat them as fellow human beings created in the image of God with views that are equally as valid for them to hold as yours are for you. They may be someone for whom your words could be the only thing preventing them from or helping them to enter the kingdom of God. This is especially important online. Before you tweet or post, please ask yourself if your message will undermine or lift up those that see it. Will it honour or shame those who disagree with it? By all means, present your opinion or perspective on something, but do it in a way that brings honour to others. And secondly, please make sure you don't inadvertently become someone that peddles propaganda rather than truth. In her book, The Mind of the Maker, Dorothy Sayers commented, The young mind experiences great difficulty in disentangling the essence of a subject from its accidents. And it is disconcertingly evident in discussions in the press that the majority of people never learn to overcome this difficulty. Distortions are not confined to distortions of opinion, but are frequently also distortions of fact, and not merely stupid misunderstandings at that, but deliberate falsifications. The journalist is indeed not interested in the facts. For this he is to some extent excusable, seeing that even if he published the facts, his public would inevitably distort them in the reading. The press and the law are in this condition because the public do not care whether they are being told truth or not. Truth matters. In our world that means we must resist the urge to speak out or retweet and repost things without checking them out first. The unfiltered online realm has become a breeding ground for really bizarre conspiracy theories that are passed on without thought to others. At best, these things are unreliable hearsay. At worst, especially when they speak ill of others without actual evidence, they are slander. Something that Paul says is a behaviour of those that hate God. The sad thing is, many of us don't take the time to check stuff out, but just repost and pass it on without thinking. It's so easy to end up propagating slander rather than honour. I want to appeal to us all to be very careful when we speak out, whether in person or on social media. Let's be those that are known for the way we honour others, especially those we disagree with. In closing this morning, I want to remind us all that while this is our home, we are actually sojourners and exiles living in a foreign land. We belong to God. We're in this world, but we're not of it. Something extraordinary has happened. We've been transformed by the gospel and that changes everything. 
We have a new purpose for our lives to play our part in God's kingdom until the glory of God fills the whole earth. It's not about us anymore. It's about Christ in us. So we submit to the government authorities because of the Lord. We honour God's authority expressed through the governing authorities, whether we like it or not, because something so much bigger is at stake, the gospel itself. This doesn't mean we always obey. Only God demands our whole obedience. But the bar for disobedience is really, really high. So we engage in robust and vigorous debate, but always seeking to honour those we disagree with. We honour and consider others before ourselves because we recognise that our words and actions really matter. Because God is making his appeal to mankind through us. It's that big. It really is. Thank you. Have a great day.